we believe that under conditions of peace we can contribute throughout Indochina to a realization of the humane aspirations of all the peoples of Indochina. And we will in that spirit perform our traditional role of helping people realize these aspirations in peace. The audio you just heard was a press conference with the American diplomat, political scientist, geopolitical consultant, and former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Alfred Kissinger. It was recorded on January 24, 1973 to explain in depth the details of the Vietnam Peace Agreement. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for having negotiated a ceasefire in Vietnam together with his Vietnam counterpart, Le Duc Tho. This was, however, following the Christmas 1972 U.S. heavy bombing of North Vietnamese Hanoi. Le Duc Tho refused the prize, and for the first time in history, two members of the Nobel Committee left the committee in protest. In their recent article, NBC News stated in its headline, Henry Kissinger, who helped negotiate an end to the Vietnam War, was also criticized for U.S. policies that supported brutal regimes. This is a standard salute to the man responsible for the deaths of literally millions around the globe, but being able to do so with apparent impunity. He died in his Connecticut home on November 28th at the age of 100. It seems a great loss that he shuffled off his mortal coil without a whisper of retribution for the numerous crimes he is alleged to have committed, not just in Vietnam, but Cambodia, Chile, Argentina, East Timor, Bangladesh, to name a few. My name is Michael Welch, and this week on the Global Research News Hour, we, together with a group of individuals, have filled a special tribute to Kissinger, befitting of the kind of work he has done over the course of an entire century. The Global Research News Hour is a radio program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe in Inu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We believed that people who have attained the assets to land, water, and resources as a result of wrongdoing toward Indigenous people who were here first should acknowledge the crimes of their ancestors and seek to end the patterns of colonialism and genocide continuing for generations and into the present. Henry A. Kissinger was Heinz Alfred Kissinger on May 27, 1923, when he was born in Firth, Bavaria, in Germany. His family was German-Jewish. His father was a schoolteacher and his mother a homemaker. He also had a younger brother named Walter. When the Nazis were elected to power in 1933, things began to change for the Kissinger family. 
Under Nazi rule, the Hitler youth gangs threatened Kissinger and his friends with harassment and beatings. Under anti-Semitism laws, they could not access certain places, and soon their father lost his job. The family fled Germany a few months before the Kristallnacht. According to Henry Kissinger, these experiences in childhood had very little to do with the policies he ended up embracing though his biographer, Walter Isingson, said they influenced the formation of his realist approach to foreign policy. After high school, he attended City College of New York while continuing to work at a shaving brush factory. In 1943, he joined the U.S. Army and served in World War II, he served with the 84th Infantry Division and saw combat. He volunteered for hazardous intelligence during the Battle of the Bulge. He received the Bronze Star and received various promotions. As the war concluded, he said his service in the Army made him feel like an American. He has received a Bachelor of Arts Summa Cum Laude, Phi Beta Kappa, in political science from Harvard College in 1950. He then, at the same university, received a Master of Arts degree in 1951 and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in 1954. His doctoral thesis was entitled Peace, Legitimacy, and the Equilibrium, a study of the statesmanship of Castlereagh and Metternich. It highlighted how legitimacy was not rooted in justice, but on the international agreement in the methods and aims of foreign policy accepted by all powers involved. This dissertation won him the Senator Charles Sumner Prize awarded to Harvard students dealing with any means or measures tending toward the prevention of war and the establishment of universal peace. It was published in 1957 as A World Restored, Metternich, Castlereagh, and the Problems of Peace, 1812-1822. In the late 50s, he found himself with appointments with the Council of Foreign Relations, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Operations Research Office, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, Department of State, and the Rand Corporation but he was keen to influence U.S. foreign policy. He first worked as a foreign policy advisor to Nelson Rockefeller during his Republican presidential campaign in 1960, 1964, and 1968. While in this post, he called rival Richard Nixon, quote, the most dangerous of all the men running to have as president, unquote. When Nixon won... Ambition caused him to switch sides and then promise to do whatever it takes to win the election. When he won the 1968 election, he then served as National Security Advisor and later as Secretary of State for the next eight years. These are the years for which Kissinger will be best known. But it should also be remembered that Kissinger was also very involved in international elite driven institutions like the Council of Foreign Relations as well as Bilderberg and Trilateral Commission. He was instrumental 
in advancing the fortunes of these groups. Richard Falk is a member of the Transcend Network, Albert G. Milbank, Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University, Chair of Global Law, Faculty of Law at Queen Mary University, London, Research Associate of the Orfale Center of Global Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Fellow of the TELUS Institute. He's also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and a nominee for a Nobel Peace Prize since 2009. He's been a long-time Kissinger watcher. He shared some thoughts about the man recently. I was wondering if you could maybe share some of the thoughts you had about when, when it was announced that he passed at 100. Well, I guess the dominant thought was how celebrated he was by the mainstream uh, the liber- including uh, liberal media platforms like the New York Times or CNN, uh, without taking note of the degree to which he was engaged in uh, a whole bunch of activities that qualify as war crimes and a persistent insensitivity to the demands of law and morality. He was the consummate establishment public intellectual who uh, served the state as a opportunistic careerist and somehow understood how to manipulate those in positions of high authority who who attributed to him a kind of wisdom and judgment which I didn't find he possessed. So I've been, from a very early time, uh, skeptical of his prominence and his influence. I I think the first time I spoke about him was to a uh, nursery school fundraising event where I talked about what's wrong with Henry Kissinger, the title of my talk. And it was essentially along these lines. And I was particularly sensitive to the role he had played in the Vietnam War at that time, and then later to the role he played in relation to the Chilean um, coup against Allende, and uh, a number of of, uh, acts which personified for me the worst tendencies in American foreign policy. He played a bad role in put in Southern Africa and Angola and Mozambique in uh, championing the successor to colonial rule by a native elites that were very closely aligned to the colonial powers. He also was very... Um, contemptuous of his uh, own staff and he acknowledged this in his uh, 
memoir diplomacy when they raised objections of law or morality to policy initiatives that he favored. And um, the, I think that he was really quite consistent in his uh, criminal behavior. He was not uh, the kind of ultra-right figure that has emerged in the present era. He had a kind of uh, prudence and uh, he saw the advantages under certain situations of per pursuing stability rather than uh, victory. So he's influential in the opening to China in the early 70s and the uh, detente diplomacy with the uh, Soviet Union. And those uh, came from his fascination since he was a graduate student with the 19th century diplomacy after the uh, Congress of Vienna at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, where the concert of Europe uh, more or less maintained peace and stability for the century. So he's a complex figure, and although uh, he didn't have any qualms about uh, pursuing uh, strategic interests of the United States as he saw them uh, without heeding uh, the UN or international law, international morality. But as I say, he was a responsible statesman compared to what is on the horizon at the present time and uh, is visible, for instance, in the way in which the Biden administration has responded to Israeli uh, genocide in uh, Gaza and uh, what the uh, Republican ultra-right is uh, criticizing as not being supportive enough of Israel in this situation. So we move to a different place in the geopolitical arena of international management of power and security. Dr. Binoy Campmark teaches core legal courses within the Legal and Dispute Studies program for the Bachelor of Social Science at RMIT University. His research interests in the institution of war, diplomacy, international relations, 20th century history, and law. He has written extensively on these subjects in both referee journals and more popular media. We asked him to share a little of his understanding of Henry Kissinger's activities in the U.S. cabinet and beyond. I remember Noam Chomsky uh, stated uh, you know, back in the late 80s or early 90s that uh, if the Nuremberg Laws applied to the United States, every U.S. president since Truman would be hanged. There have been a number of people in the U.S. government who have broken the law. What makes Kissinger unique or different? What makes Kissinger unique or different was that he 
not only got away with what he did, but he got away with it with uh, a degree of uh, glamour, style, and convincing the establishment that he actually did not do anything particularly wrong. It was all part of the process. It was all part of, you know, the occasional egg has to be cracked if you want to make an omelette. And he adopted this idea of realism, which, uh, and by the way, I want to say that uh, I think he's he's a shoddy realist relative to some of his contemporaries, um, others, and, you know, who have done far better on this. But he came up with this idea that um, states operate in power terms and that things like values, principles, human rights don't really apply. But what is interesting is that he showed constantly throughout his time as national security advisor, uh, as secretary of state, um, that he was very aware about the way human rights might, as it were, be important. Democracy might be important. Political systems might be important. But the idea was power came first. Power and order, I suppose, were these two principles. So when Chomsky made that reference, he's absolutely right that if you were to use the standards of the Nuremberg trials in 1945, 1946, uh, the Nuremberg um, Charter, as it were, of the International Military Tribunal, individuals like Kissinger would be merrily tried and certainly should see themselves in the dock. Um, you know, certainly in The Hague and so on. But that did not happen because Kissinger was also backed. He was adulated. He was uh, worshipped and he was forgiven in many ways, which is quite astonishing. We will never know exactly the extent about what he did in terms of the damage. But we do know the consequences of his involvement, say, in the secret bombings in Cambodia um, during the Nixon administration and the late 1960s and early 1970s. We know, for example, that he was a key figure in terms of targeting, in terms of telling the Defense Secretary Laird uh, about, well, these particular targets need to be done, courtesy of the president and so on. Uh, so that destabilized, of course, Cambodia. It also resulted in the coming to power of the Khmer Rouge, and that resulted in the death of uh, at least verifiably over a million people. He was responsible for a range of, well, you know, tens of thousands of deaths throughout South America because of his operation and involvement in the infamous Operation Condor, which was this collective understanding between military governments and authoritarian regimes that left-wing dissidents and individuals would be locked up, tortured, or disappeared, as the expression was. So he was very much a key figure. And of course, his crowning achievement in that whole thing was the overthrow of the democratically elected Salvador Allende. And it, it's, it's one of those most shocking things to imagine that this particular figure, so Allende it was a revolutionary moment in every sense of the word, but Kissinger kept telling Nixon and various colleagues, of course, that we cannot have this example of popular democracy succeed in South America. It will threaten our interests. So there are also several throwaway lines that uh, it's all good that the Chilean people exercise their right to democracy, but we must guide it. Mm. So um, so the, the nature of it was that, uh, so that's South America. In terms of you know, issues of his involvement, uh, the involvement in the context of Pakistan and East 
or then East Pakistan, Bangladesh, as it's now called, the, uh, the role he played in various uh, African theaters, the uh, backing of dictatorships and so on. And then ultimately, of course, you know, he also played a fundamental role in, and let's not forget, you know, in Indonesia and the Indonesian context, giving essentially the green light to Suharto to invade Timor-Leste that resulted, of course, in this brutal occupation that we still are not sure about the figures. It could be anywhere up to half a million people who died there. So the uh, the butcher's bill is very extensive indeed. And let's not forget that uh, he's celebrated, of course, as this great diplomatic shaman, this wonderful figure who brought, for example, an end to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Well, this is, of course, total nonsense because the end to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam could have been concluded in, you know, 68 or 69. Uh, the reason why it was prolonged was because of Kissinger, who was essentially performing duties from his then paymaster, as it were, Richard Nixon, to destabilize any efforts to find a peace deal between the North and the South and thereby sabotage the then Paris peace talks. So we, we should never forget that... Um, I always find this funny. He's always said to be this brilliant, strategic, diplomatic figure. No, he wasn't. He was, he was uh, a person of vanity. He was a person obsessed with truckling. I like that word, truckling. He's a fauna. You know, he was one of those who played up to the authority of the day, and uh, he built up this image of being some master strategist. Press outlets love power. They actually worship the exercise of power, and admire individuals who use it extensively. Kissinger noted this very early on in his career, but what he did do was court the social and society columns, for example, of the Washington Post, and he would be discussed and there would be rumors circulating. And of course, he's the one who we associate that famous expression, aphrodisiac, essentially, you know, powers and aphrodisiac. And uh, even though it's not original to him, but he's one who claims to have minted it. So the presses like a powerful figure they can write about. They don't necessarily question it. And that's one of the reasons why the recent obituaries and reflections in the New York Times and the Washington Post were almost insufferable. I mean, what, what's interesting is that there were, you know, as was, you know, has been pointed out by Melvin Goodman, you know, uh, in Counterpunch and, and so on, in a way he says, you know, that in contrast, say, for example, to Carter, President Carter, it, you know, Kissinger is shown as some kind of enlightened figure of monumental proportions, Carter as a bumbler and a fool. So it's really interesting that Carter, who did believe in human rights, and he was stumbling, it's true on some levels, but he actually did believe in a certain degree of transparency and awareness that Kissinger hated. And yet we have the New York Times and Washington Post providing almost these uh, hagiographic accounts, saintly venerations about this man. And I find it, it is remarkable to see, but I do think the core to understand this is that the press, generally speaking, worship power. And I suppose just, and you know, you know, we've discussed this in the context of Assange and WikiLeaks. That was perhaps one of the great projects of WikiLeaks. It was to destroy that nexus between the worship of power, as it were, of the press, the standard press, and enabling people 
to see the nature of how that power works. While in office, Kissinger also got attention as a man who helped open up China-U.S. relations. Can't mark comments on this aspect. I have to, on one level, give him some credit, say that he wasn't uh, uh, a sinophobe. And in that sense, the realism argument works insofar as it's ridiculous to acknowledge or just treat the exile government of Chiang Kai-shek, known in certain circles of the State Department, as cash my check. And, uh, you know, the idea is that, well, we, we shift the influence away from the Taiwanese government, in Formosa, as it was then called, and we focus on the PRC, People's Republic of China. So from that perspective, yes, I mean, it, it's once the US acknowledged the legitimacy of Mao Zedong's government, then, of course, Chinese, as it were, uh, officialdom behavior and so on could then continue and, and so on. But but then again, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves and, and say that this was particularly brilliant. It was designed to split the uh, the Soviet Chinese bloc. So we have to remember why he also did it. He wasn't doing it because he particularly liked, um, he had developed a particular interest in, you know, Sichuan cooking or anything like that or particularly interest in China per se, he was interested in splitting the bloc, uh, the association between the Soviet Union and China. And of course, remember, he was building on already pre-existing animosities. It's, it's actually remarkable that one of the understated stories of the Cold War was that China and the Soviet Union did not wage a full-scale conflict. There were various border skirmishes resulting in hundreds of deaths through the course of the time. But what is interesting is that he just capitalized on what was already known, namely that uh, Moscow and Beijing, or as then called Peking, were not seeing eye to eye. So we have to see it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. It's been said that globalization uh, in the modern sense really uh, started with three men, David Rockefeller, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and Henry Kissinger. What principal blocks that led to globalization did those three men lay down? The precursor to globalization is always empire. It's imperial control. It's power. It's controlling routes, minerals, commodities, access, resources. What happened post-1945 was that these, and you, you mentioned rightly in the context of Rockefeller, Rzhinsky, and so forth, is that in a sense, they were consolidating what was already there as well. So what they did was, in a sense, supercharge it. You know, they, <laughs> it was a sense of just realizing that the nature of the corporation is becoming very important. The nature of capital flows is becoming rapid, and intrinsic to the function of so-called you know, economics and so on. And then states becoming less and less relevant. I don't think they're necessarily less and less relevant, but the assumption is that corporations do the heavy lifting. The states are the ones who end up having to make adjustments for that. And we see that legacy today uh, in terms of how that works. He's co-written a book with Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, The, the Age of AI and Our Human Future. What, what, what is he trying to accomplish by, by pr- heading a project like that? 
oh, he's uh, trying to do what he always has. You know, he can see a, a bandwagon a mile off. So the thing about Kissinger was that being the publicist, the self-publicist, being you know an individual with a nose very much attuned to trends, AI, of course, was one of the big trends and the role of, it would play. It's no accident that he ended up um, teaming up with Schmidt. And Schmidt also is amoral. His perspective about human behavior and the way Google operated and surveillance, I think it's a perfect team. You know, Kissinger had no interest particularly about the nature of human rights, the nature of behavior in that sense. So, and Schmidt, he's, he's very much tied into the cyber AI military industrial complex. So he's, it's it, in many ways, it was a logical fit. I wasn't surprised at all by that. But I think to, to explain it in the, in the broader sense, uh, Kissinger's understanding of it was, will you tap into the next option to control power? So if you control the nature of AI and the way it fits there, well and good. The man uh, headed a very, um, shall we say, um, aggressive advisory body, you know, Henry Kissinger Associates. I mean, it, it was a private consultancy with huge outreach uh, to con contacts across the globe, advising governments essentially how, if, they, if things got messy, how to get out of it. My name is Michael Welch, and you are listening to the Global Research News Hour, a radio program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The program this week is a show devoted to the legacy of Henry Kissinger on his recent death in Connecticut and in memorial to his millions of victims. If we can't get the Capitol Hill police in here immediately, get out of here, you low-life scum. That was audio from a January 2015 appearance by Henry Kissinger at the Senate Armed Services Committee, where Kissinger was about to give a testimonial on global security challenges. It was chaired by Senator John McCain. Members of the anti-war group Code Pink stood up close to him and attempted a citizen's arrest for war crimes. It was peaceful, and participants were eventually led away by the Capitol Hill police. Global Research News Hour reached out to a member of Code Pink to get their appraisal of the man from an activist's perspective. Jody Evans is co-founder with Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. Code Pink um, started when Bush was frightening the American people into war on Iraq. And he was using the color-coded alerts, orange, red, and yellow, and we called Code Pink for Peace. Mm -hmm. We have been engaged in the streets ever since then, 22 years ago, um, by disrupting Congress, by disrupting wherever those in power, uh, the warmongers are, to disrupt their narratives uh, that war is... Uh, that there's any excuse for war and the killing of innocent people and the using our taxpayer dollars to go to war and destroy the planet because there's nothing more um, that 
contributes to the destruction of the planet more than more. Is there something unique about Kissinger as opposed to all the other uh, people that have been there for, for the, who've been coming in over the last few decades? I think that he managed to kill a, a lot of people. Um, I think what might be um, special to him was that so much of what he did was done under the radar for so long that he got away with murder, uh, working, you know, for the empire uh, with a media that never called him on it. Uh, he, he he was able to disrupt uh, democracies and uh, and destroy the lives of innocent people around the world, <laughs> where Bush was kind of limited. But um, you know, uh, in my book, he wins the war criminal of uh, the United States award, even though it's a close sec second with Cheney and Andrew Jackson. Well, was there anything special about Kiss Kissinger in terms of the appeal he has among politicians? I mean, you know, John McCain, for example, got really angry and, and called you low-life scum and such. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, the imperialists love their fellow imperialist murderers. Um, we can see that with Netanyahu right now. Uh, look at Biden, you know, watching this destruction of humanity and, and fawning over Netanyahu. The fact that he's not being put, you know, into the International Criminal Court is is a blight on humanity. And, you know, Kissinger's the same. Uh, those that serve the empire love each other. The Clintons, Obama, Bushes, they just love each other. They're they're willing to murder innocent people around the globe. Don't think the United States doesn't have blood on its hands all day long. And we as U.S. taxpayers pay for that. And um, it's just that, you know, Kissinger kind of wrote the textbook for some of uh, the modern um, and not just always, you know, not just the carpet bombing of Laos and Cambodia um, that, you know, he kept secret, but who's against democratically elected governments that caused death, murder, destruction? What about the the role of the media? Is that having an impact on the perception of the general public? I, I, I just think it's generational. I mean, certainly those of my generation, like I said, I'm, you know, 70. Um, those of my generation, the media did expose him. He was um exposed in many ways in the 70s uh, for what he was doing. And the uh, Indochina campaign took him on directly to stop the bombing of Laos and Cambodia. Um, you know, Chileans have, you know, layers and layers and books and books exposing his violence. I would say in East Timor and, you know, in many of the places there's movies and books and but, you know, we live in a, a historical time right now where so many people have forgotten what <laughs> or, or have never learned their history. And so, you know, he, now in the in the, the aughts when Bush and Cheney were the great, the great evils or the Clintons or Obama with his droning, uh, you know, with his killed Tuesdays uh, for you know, the last kind of 40 years he's faded and he's just kind of been somebody you drag into the room. 
Um, and so most of his the devastation of him isn't uh, that ab available for young people. The media, those in power, they're serving the empire. And for them, you know, I think for many of them, he's a hero. To try to make sense of Kissinger, we have to look at his early scholarship and see how and if it had an impact. Matt J.L. Errett is a journalist, historical analyst, lecturer, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review. In a September 2019 article, he was able to trace Kissinger's geopolitical policies with his early scholarship. His work, A World Restored, Metternich, Castlereagh, and the Problems of Peace, 1812 to 1822, recounts what happened to address the chaos of the American Revolution and French Revolutions of the late 1700s to the 1815 Congress of Vienna and the Great Restoration it restored. He joined me to elaborate on the principles involved. What kind of a personal philosophy would see the revolutions of the, the late 18th century, which are you know seen as very democratic, right? Corrected by the restoration of elites in the early 19th century. I think a very sick, sick soul with a very perverse idea of what democracy is, since Kissinger professed to be a defender of the democratic rules-based order as it's come to be known. But despite that, um, for this book to be his sort of manifesto that he that organized his entire life, I think it says a lot about the man, what he represented, who he was beholden to, since it did represent the crushing of democratic sentiments and revolutionary freedom-loving sentiments that had spread far and wide across Europe um, in the wake of the American Revolution. And this idea of the restoration of the monarchies, the restoration of the ruling families into an agreed-upon uh, div division of power blocks, um, which was manifested with the 1815 Congress of Vienna that went on. I mean, the, these, these disputes and negotiations went on for some years after that. Um, is It really is a sign of the type of system of empire that he was always beholden to and also the religion i believe of stasis the belief that that anything that disrupts stasis stability and uh and that master slave dichotomization of systems is bad which must be crushed and i i think just looking at kissinger's entire life you could see how this flowed through this study of 1815 flowed through and animated all of his decisions he went through a lot of childhood trauma that he never resolved or dealt with, but that put him in a, a psychological state of misanthropy and cynicism, um, which was conducive for his later intellectual um, identity to grow and be groomed by certain figures who were placed in his path. Uh, for example, William Yandel Elliott, who was a Rhodes Scholar who uh, controlled what's known in some circles as the Chatham House of Harvard. Um, Yandel Elliott had groomed oh, years and years, group, many groups of sociopathic young young men um, to become essentially what Yandel Elliott himself had devoted his life to as, as a Rhodes Scholar, a system of the rejuvenation and rebranding of the stability of the, of the British Empire, but under a new name in the 20th century and beyond. Other people who were studying under, under Yandel Elliott involved as big new brzezinski uh samuel p huntington was a student and all of them pierre Elliott trudeau in his own way uh was also a student and all of them played a very vicious role in the 20th century 
but I think that the the underlying the undergirding the intellectual framework of a Kissinger or of a Zbigniew Brzezinski is a deep spiritual sickness. And I think his experience as a, as a young boy, again, um, in Germany, um, definitely created that, that type of toxic trauma as a foundation upon which this entire logic, because it's like, how do you, how do you build with a clean conscience, a logical system that will encourage creating unnecessary wars, divide to conquer policies, programs of population control and reduction, creation of artificial scarcity, things that are going to are going to kill millions and if, if not billions of people, destroy families and create wars. What would justify that? Well, there has to be some sense of a greater good in his mind. And that greater good is, again, the altar, the, the god of stability and stasis that he uh, just always yearned for in a tumultuous uh, childhood. And he couldn't get it until finally the war was over. Kissinger's philosophy as America's secretary of state worked to reverse this trend in favor of elites. I mean, uh, and the elite moment today is is dominant. Is, is that about right? That's a good characterization. Yeah, most people miss that. And they, they oversimplify uh, a nation as one thing. And the, the U.S. can't be you can't do that with the U.S. It, it its origin its origins emerged out of a revolutionary freedom loving a tendency. And uh, unfortunately, many of those loyalists who always kept their um, their commitments to the systems of global control of the British Empire, the city of London, which are still today, I mean, the city of London is still a global control uh, node for international finance that that never disappeared. They, they, they remained behind acting as if they were Amer American patriots, but always working to undermine the revolution from within, and always interfacing with uh, imperial networks abroad through different Freemasonic operations, the uh, United Grand Lodge being the mother lodge of uh, Britain that interfaces with sister lodges, the the Scottish Rite being the biggest one that came out dominant after the uh, the 1840s, purged of all of the other uh, lodges that were otherwise used. There were hundreds, you know, some of them were, were used by patriots to organize themselves. Other ones uh, were bad. And uh, after the purge, the purges of the Masonic lodges in the 1830s and 40s, the only one that came out dominant was the Scottish Rite in America. And it was always beholden to the grant, the United Grand Lodge uh, in Britain that interfaced with American intelligence, British intelligence and other things. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, it's an important nuance to recognize that there are these two opposing currents within um, America, just as there are within England as well. There are, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, arose out of a positive anti-imperial current that is there within England's history. But unfortunately, the dominant one has been and is today the uh, the more vicious uh, variation. You, you said that uh, in your article that uh, the colored revolutions of the modern day are rooted in the age. And, and he together, uh, Kissinger together with Zbigniew Brzezinski, guided the creation of the National Endowment of Democracy, which is, uh, you know, it's been called the CIA work by other means. Uh, how do you connect these developments with his earlier scholarship? Oh, that that's 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 a whole show unto itself. But in, in summary fashion, um, one of the aspects of the counter revolution of the uh, of the Congress of Vienna involved crushing any sentiment for liberty and illegalizing, they had things known, known as the, the Carlsbad Decrees, 
which Metternich and Castlereagh oversaw as far as an illegalization of bad thoughts. It was very Orwellian. You 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 had censors in the schools and publishing houses. Many many professors were purged for for, for teaching you know um, illegal thoughts. Uh, books couldn't be published. You couldn't read Thomas Paine. You even couldn't even listen to revolutionary music like classical music like Mozart. Many of Mozart's pieces were difficult to find or to hear as far as concerts. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony couldn't be listened to in any concert for many years during the Carlsbad Decrees. Again, Benjamin Franklin's works and other things couldn't be read. So it was a stifling atmosphere. and There was a clampdown on liberties, a crushing of the people's will to break them and get them to become good feudal serfs again. That resulted in naturally a, a, a backlash, a revolutionary backlash. And I go through it in my article and in my books of the uh, the efforts by Marquis de Lafayette to have a second attempt to organize this energy towards um, undoing the damage of the French Revolution. And uh, that was the 1830 period where he was he almost became president again, but once again, failed morally to accept his responsibilities and declare the the, king, the monarchy null and void. And uh, he believed in certain promises he was given by Louis Philippe the first. Uh, which were all abrogated. He was fired from the National Guard and France became an empire working with other empires of Europe again. Bro it broke his heart, but he died uh, you know, a few years later. And and but the 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 genie was unleashed. The, the what he had been a part of for about six years with an international network that I go through um was operating in Poland, in Prussia, in all over the US to um to recapture the spirit of 1776 and so despite the fact that his french efforts were aborted the the fervor was there and palmerston mazzini um who was a, a a grand strategist in italy operating through the the propaganda uno lodge but also working closely with uh, lord palmerston were came up with a new strategy of taking the energy of the mobs of the masses and with the help of certain arts of um manipulation of creating certain synthetic cults uh that became known as the young Europe the young Albania the young Albania young Germany young France young there was young America young Canada they basically created a movement in the 1840s around um promoting weaponizing mob activity to overthrow any type of established order in any government you wanted to get that in that involved people who didn't know how they were being used they were they were disenfranchised abused often laborers youth um and the idea was to give them a sense of their superiority after years of of having been um emaciated and and crushed and stifled um under systems of empire you they they yearned for some sense of dignity much like the germans in the 1920s after having been stifled under the Versailles suffocating debt repayments, which were humiliating, they were so broken and desperate for some sense of dignity that they they ended up becoming very, very um, susceptible to the type of, of promises made by a fascist strongman. Same type of thing was being offered back then. Garibaldi played a role in uh, in Italy and South America um, under the Mazzini operation. So did Albert Pike, the Grand Master Freemason in the United States, who was part of the Mazzini apparatus inside of the U.S., uh, but it took on different character characteristics in different nations. But in all cases, part of it involved reju rejuvenating uh, romanticized ideas of the past when Albania or Poland or whatever were an empire, uh, an alpha operation, you know, an alpha 
Prima Inter Paris and uh, and essentially restoring little mini ideas of um, little empires everywhere. The, the, there was a Young Turks movement as well that uh, was used later on to disrupt the Ottoman Empire. So yeah, I mean it, this this technique was refined over the century over the 150 years since then, but it was it's essentially as far as I can see the exact model utilized in the crafting of the uh, the color revolutionary program that emerged in the, uh, the late 70s uh through the works of the trilateral commission leaders Zbigniew, Huntington, others um and and were and put to work destabilizing governments that were unwieldy or unwilling to abide by the systems of globalization that was expected of them. I noticed that there are these international organizations, Bilderberg, <laughs> Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, as you just explained, and they, they they seem to also have this, you know, interest in elite restoration, uh, you know, restoring things for them, and so that that seems to be a, an ideal fit for uh kissinger his talents were were detected early on um again as he uh, one of william yandel elliott's boys that was always a recruitment um department for higher functions within the auxiliary upper upper management auxiliary class of the empire um so the 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 elliott being an elliott boy um <laughs> a william yandel elliott boy was already a, a gateway into a lot of inner clubs. And I think, you know, you look at one of his earliest jobs after that experience is he became the assistant to the director of the CIA's Office for Psychological Strategy Board, um, which put him, I mean, he was then at that point um, going shoulder to shoulder with some of the the inner echelon elites. You know, some, some of the figures like the Rhodes Scholar Dean Rusk had already been positioned in a very high point of influence in the Eisenhower cabinet. That uh, and he played a key role in in orchestrating the uh, and overseeing the uh, the Korean War. Um, played a big role in orchestrating the the Vietnam War with many other Fabians and uh, and and Rhodes Scholars and their their associates of the Pilgrim Society in America. He was a part of the American Pilgrim Society, which was set up in 1902 to encourage Anglo American unification over uh, William McKinley's dead body. You know the the, the assassinated president. These are all Eastern establishment uh, families, uh, the types of people who get processed through skull and bones, you know, and are, are part of that operation. David Rockefeller III talked about how he discovered Kissinger at this point. Kissinger was uh, the editor of the foreign, foreign Affairs or Foreign Policy magazine for the CFR, the, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the roundtable Rhodes Scholar uh, think tank set up in 1921. So in America as part of the American branch. The Chatham House in London is the the uh, senior branch of all of these things. We got them all over the Commonwealths. So he, the fact that he br he was brought in so early on to be, be an editor there um, and then become a one of the earliest American members of the Bilderberger Group early on before becoming a steering committee member. Um, he was part of the Rockefeller Study Group on you know the USA and the New World Order in 1956 with Henry Luce and uh, you know, you just see these guys. It's just it's creepy to see how this like uh, virus took over the uh, the host. Uh, but he definitely played a very effective role. He was very, very good at what he did, you know, and so he he rose through the ranks very, very quickly. Yeah. My name is Michael Welch. This is the Global Research News Hour, And today we're doing a special profile of the recently deceased American diplomat, political scientist, geopolitical consultant, and former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry 
Alfred Kissinger. We've spoken to a number of guests. I asked each of them to point out what Henry Kissinger's legacy will be. He has this double personality, which is uh, unusual, I suppose, in prominent figures of this sort, of on the one hand being a war criminal, and on the other hand being a uh, widely admired uh, uh, diplomat and uh, theorist of international relations. Now, on the right, there was a certain criticism of him that paralleled uh, the uh, point of view on the left, and that was that he wasn't prepared to take the kind of risks that were uh, desirable to push America into the position of permanent dominance. And uh, therefore, he wasn't uh, the kind of geopolitical uh, <clears throat> statesman that was uh, whose ideas fit with the unipolar realities that emerged after the, the implosion of the Soviet Union. In other words, in the aftermath of the Cold, uh, of, of the, um, cold War, uh, the ultra-right saw this as a unipolar moment where the U.S. could establish what I've called a Monroe Doctrine for the world, in which only the United States would have the authority to act uh, militarily outside its borders. And any other state that was pursuing traditional spheres of influence or uh, as Russia has in relation to Ukraine or as uh, China uh, aspires to do in relation to Taiwan, they are aggressors, uh, whereas the U.S. is uh, the, the guarantor of a uh, stable market-oriented international system. So that capitalism and geopolitics are merged in this vision of a unipolar world that others don't have a participatory role in managing. Two things. One, his ability to have crafted an identity that could be so globally about the brilliant statesman, the brilliant strategist, of which he was not. But the key is controlling the way that is crafted. You know, Chamberlain was ousted eventually, and then came Churchill. And Churchill said about uh, Chamberlain the following. He said, history will not treat you well. I know that because I will write it. And, and this is the fundamental reality that I think Kissinger realized. He knew that he had to shape it, and he knew exactly how to cultivate the press, how to cultivate the press corps, and how to generally cultivate uh, the various courtiers of the globe. And that's, that's sort of one of the first things. But then ultimately, I would finish by saying that this was not a person who provided fearless, frank advice, as the expression goes for the civil service generally. 
he provided advice that he knew his superiors would like. He likes to give this impression that he was the sound diplomat, that he was uh, the, the very all omniscient being giving advice, for example, to Nixon, but he cowered before Nixon. You know, in that sense, he cowered to power. And I think that should be always remembered in regarding his legacy too. Well, I guess that de depends on which side you're on. His legacy is that of a, you know, the biggest war criminal in the United States to many. And I'm sure to Blinken and Biden uh, that he was a great statesman uh, for the violent empire that they now represent. I, I assuming it just depends on where you are in the spectrum as to how you think about Kissinger. You're talking about Kissinger, and I think the one thing about people in history, you know, the one thing to look at is the really the blood on the hands of the U.S. and Canadian Empire. He was a a wannabe high priest for a dark age cult um, that will permanently stain humanity and be a lesson for future generations of what not to do or what humanity looks like when we're acting like a basket case and you know uh when we're acting like a basket case destroying ourselves um he will be up there i think with one of as a role model or a lesson of what we should never aspire to be um right up there with hitler and others but it's he he wasted his life he he devoted his life to all of the wrong passions and ideas and yeah, it's it's sad. He could have been something maybe better if he was given uh, some more love <laughs> as a child, and uh, and uh, and not what he was given instead as a as a Rhodes Scholar recruitment to the uh, <laughs> to the to the Empire. This week we heard Richard Falk, Benoit Campmark, Jody Evans, and Matt Errett comment on the record of Henry Kissinger and on the many many victims he left behind. On the Global Research News Hour, a radio program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. On the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Creedene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland, the clips you heard were archived online by C SPAN. Music was Shifting Sands from Purple Planet Music, available at purple-planet.com. If you would like to get in touch regarding this or any other program, email us at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Please join us next week for recent updates from Naomi Wolf and Dr. William Mackis about recent findings regarding the Visor report and the damages reportedly caused by the COVID vaccine. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Join us again in seven days.